guys can have a seat, but Maria's actually going to keep playing. We're going to do something a little bit different than what we usually do. Um, as we're on Christmas break right now with so many people from our church away, uh, out with families, that kind of stuff, uh, we're taking a quick break from our series in Romans, and we are going through just a few different psalms. Uh, whoever's going to be preaching each week is going to be sharing from the book of Psalms, uh, from some sort of psalm that's really impacted their life in, in some particular kind of way. It's up to them. Um, what I'm going to teach from this morning is actually Psalm 37, but the word psalm comes from a Greek word that denotes plucking or twanging of strings. And uh, so when we look at psalms, they're actually a collection of songs. It's kind of like ancient Israel's hymn book, okay? Uh, their, their top 40 or their top 150, actually, because there's 150 psalms. Um, and so it's, that's what it is. It's the longest book of the Bible. It's all songs. And so I'm, I've asked Maria to actually keep playing while I read Psalm 37. Um, it's pretty long. It's, it's 40 verses. Uh, but I want you to just listen into this. Uh, the words will be up on the screen as I go along. And just think about what this song is communicating here. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious towards wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. <clears throat> Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked <clears throat> will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. <clears throat> All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. 
For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of, God, of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I've seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright. For the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Psalm 37. All right, let's pray, and uh, I'll dive into some we were talking about there. God, we love you, and I just thank you that you're good, uh, that you are are worth writing songs about. Um, There's so many of them, Lord, the, the 150 that are in the Bible and the, so many others, God, that we sing to you each um, Sunday morning here. God, I thank you that there's um, so much that we can learn from these psalms too, that you instruct us about who you are and that you instruct us about how we should live. And God, I just pray that you would give us insight this morning into knowing more of how we should live and how we can connect with you, God. I pray that you'd help us to be people that really experience you, that have a real relationship with you. So please be with us here in this room this morning. Move in our hearts, God. Uh, we love you. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Thanks. <laughs> cool. So it's good to see you guys. Are you guys excited for Christmas this week? This week, right? Is Christmas on Saturday? Yeah. How about that? Um, obviously, this time of year is a fun uh, time that we look forward to for a lot of reasons. Uh, when you're a little kid, it's usually because you're all about getting presents. Uh, maybe some of you guys are that way still right now. Are you guys really excited to get presents? Okay, not, not too much enthusiasm. That's okay. I know yeah, that, that enthusiasm kind of wanes as you get older, which is to be expected. Um, as a matter of fact, I think that uh, for a lot of us, you actually become more excited to give gifts as you get older rather than receive them. Um, now, I am not a guy that's really, like, huge into gifts in general, either, like, giving or receiving them, but even I can appreciate a gift that's, like, really well thought out and meaningful, and, and I can have a fun time giving a gift uh, that's really well thought out and meaningful, uh, if, if it's something that fits perfectly in with that person, uh, a need that I know they have or something that I know they really love, or if someone gives a gift to me that just fits me really well, it, it's, it's, like, hits exactly a need that I have or, or it's something special they know that, yeah, Grant in particular would really love this thing. That can be really meaningful to me. Um, I'm actually not a a great gift giver, as I was saying, because it's not something that is very exciting to me. But I do know that uh, if you want to be a great gift giver, you have to know the person that you're giving it to, right? Like, you have to have some sort of insight into their life about what they really like, uh, what it is that would actually bless them. Um, 
And so you can't do this without having a good understanding of the person or without with just getting really, really lucky. Uh, so it's likely that the people that know you best are going to have the best opportunity to give you the most meaningful gift. And so I have to ask this morning, like, who is it that knows you best? Like, as you think about if you were to get the perfect Christmas gift, maybe something that you can't even necessarily think, this person knows you so well that they're going to give you a gift that maybe you wouldn't even think of for yourself. Who is it that knows you like that? You may have a person that comes to mind, and that's generally what you're going to think of with this. Uh, but I would say that the one that knows you best, without any doubt, is God. Right? I know you're in church, so maybe you were already ahead of me for, for thinking about that answer. Uh, but, but it's true. Right? Like, God is the one that created you. He knows everything about the, the kind of personality, the kind of brain that he's given you, the, the hairs on your head, everything about you. He has been there for every second of your life. You think about that, right? Like, the people that know you the best are usually the ones that spend the most time with you. They see you in the most situations. You ever think about the fact that there's never been a second of your life that God hasn't seen? And not just that, but actually, there's never been a thought that you've had that God doesn't know. Right? Like, not only does he see you uh, in all the situations you're in, he actually knows what's going on inside of your head in all of these. Like, he, he knows you in the most deep, intimate way possible. Psalm 139 speaks some to this. Just, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all. God knows you better than you know yourself. And if that's true, then he's going to have the greatest potential as a gift giver in your life, right? If what I was saying before is that the people that can give you the best gifts are the ones that understand you the best and know your needs the best. If that is who God is, which I would say very confidently, he knows you better than anyone, then he is going to know how to give you the greatest gifts that he can possibly give. And the good news is God is a really, really good gift giver. He is the great gift giver. You know, at Christmas, we give gifts to our loved ones as an imitation, actually, of the way that God, uh, the great giver, gave us such a perfect Christmas gift. And I think that sometimes we actually miss out on the depth of what was given to us at Christmas. I think oftentimes, maybe if you grew up in church, or even just being in the United States, you think of this idea of like the gift of baby Jesus. And, and yes, that's true, but I don't know that we really grasp the reality of what's going on there. That, that this gift of Christ's coming at Christmas, what that really is, is introducing us into a gift of, of being able to be connected with God himself. Right, like that's ultimately why Jesus came. It wasn't uh, just so that he could give us some good teachings. It wasn't just so that he could live in a way that we have the gospels written about him and we understand his teachings or saw his healing or anything like that. He came and he dwelled among us and he showed us who God is. Right, L like Hebrews, I don't have this on, on my slides, but I just, I want to read this for you. Uh, just speaking about this way that, that God has spoken to us through Jesus, like God in the flesh coming and dwelling among us, think about the view that gives us into who God is. This is what uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews starts out this way, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Said, do, do you want to know what God looks like? That Jesus is exact representation. Said, God has spoken to us uh, in many ways, right? We have all of these Old Testament prophets and everything that, that God spoke through, and, and we have his word through them. But he's saying, in these last days, do you, you want to get a really, really great way that God has spoken to us? It's in Jesus. Like, when you look at Jesus, you see who God is. He's the exact representation. He's the radiance of his glory. But here's the thing. It actually goes even deeper than this. It's not just that as, as Jesus comes at Christmas and, and he dwells among us, that we start to get a better understanding of who God is, a better opportunity for this than we've ever had before. It goes deeper. Even here in this, this uh, Hebrews passage, it talks about this making purification of sins. And ultimately, that's what Jesus came to do. It wasn't just to, to live and, and be God who was dwelling amongst us, right? Like that name Emmanuel that you hear at Christmas sometimes, that means God with us. That's what, that's what we, Jesus did at Christmas. But even more so, he came for a purpose. And his purpose was to seek and to save that which is lost. He knew that his hour was coming. And so his whole life, even as he did all these teachings and healings and everything, was leading up to this climax where he knew he was going to have to go to the cross and die for our sins. As Hebrews talks about it, making purification for our sins. That Jesus would go to the cross and when he would die on it, he would literally uh, pay the penalty that we owe for our sins. The sin that, that separates us from God, who is perfect and holy, and us who are not. Jesus said, I'm going to go and pay for that. I'm going to wash them away with my blood. And if he doesn't take on flesh, he can't go to the cross and die and do that. And so as he does that, <clears throat> not only does he die <clears throat> for us, but he raises again to, to, to life. And we're promised that those of us that put our faith in him will raise to new life with him. Right? Jesus himself even spoke this. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so we see that at the incarnation, this gift of Christmas, not only did, did God come and dwell amongst us in a way that we could understand him better than we've ever understood him before, but also in doing that, it enabled him to go and make purification for our sins, to go and die on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And so what was dividing us from God has now been wiped away. And not only that, but he rose from the dead to life, and he says that those who follow me, they're going to have eternal life too. And not only that, but what is that life like? It's life that's with him. It, right, it, it's not just that we have it. It's like he, he sets us off on a new course, says, great, here's your second life. Uh, do good, wish you the best. But it's that we actually get to be reconciled, to be brought close, brought together with him. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 
and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That word reconciled, it means to be brought back together. Our sin had once separated us from God, but now in Christ, we are able to be brought back together with him. So think about all of this, right? Uh, when I say God is the perfect gift giver, when we think about this gift at Christmas, this thing that we kind of even try to imitate as we give gifts to one that we, ones that we love, I want you to understand the depth of what that is. It's so much more than just a baby that came in a manger. It's, it's God dwelling amongst us in the flesh, showing us who he is in a way that we've never been able to see before. And taking on flesh allowed him to die on the cross so that he could, could pay for our sins and that he rose from the dead to give us new life and that as we have this new life he invites us into, he invites us into it with him. It's not just to pat us on the back, hey, good luck, do better this time. It's I want you to walk with me. We're reconciled, we're brought back together. We who were once far off are now close. This is the great gift that God's given us in Christ. He's brought us back together with him. And as a matter of fact, he's brought us so close that we're called his children. We actually get to be adopted as his children. You were designed to be with God, and there is no greater gift that we could possibly have than a relationship with him. So this is the gift that God offers us at Christmas. The question is, what good is a gift if you never open it? Right? Like if I, if I brought a gift for each of you this morning and wrapped it up real nice in ribbons and bows and gave it to you, what good does that gift do you if you don't open it? Nothing. Matter of fact, in some ways you could argue that you never really got the gift. Like I may have had the intention to give it to you, uh, to allow you to receive it, but if you don't actually take it, then you miss out on whatever it was that I wanted to give you. And so I don't know where all of you are this morning. I think for some of you, you need to realize that God is offering you this gift of being reconciled with himself. And he's doing that through Jesus and that you need to actually open that. You need to take it. For, for many of you, maybe I would say even probably most of you in this room, you have taken that gift. But we also have to say, what good does a gift do that maybe you open and you take it, but that you never actually use? You kind of set it off in the corner and, and don't think about it very much. That gift isn't really giving you uh, the kind of enjoyment that it was designed to give. And, you know, I, I used to work construction over the summers, and uh, one time I was working with, at, in a, a school, we were doing this thing, we were putting air conditioning in for them, and uh, I think, I met the school janitor for some reason, I don't know why, but we were talking some, and he, he would work uh, night shifts, his wife worked day shifts, uh, a different job, and so I was like, man, that's weird, you must like never really see your wife very often, and this had been going on this way for years, probably like, I think at least a decade they'd been living this way. They pretty much only saw each other on weekends. <clears throat> I was like, that, that's kind of strange. Do you like that? He's like, oh, yeah, it works, it works well for us. But I, I couldn't help but think, like, this guy, like, yeah, he's married. He has this beautiful gift that, that marriage is, this relationship with his wife. But he's missing out. Like, he's missing out on experiencing the depth of what his marriage could be because he's only seen his wife on weekends. And I think that for, for some of us, we have a relationship with Jesus, but we, we almost settle the way that that janitor did uh, with, with his wife. Where it's like, yeah, I have the relationship. It's good. We get along well. I enjoy it. 
but, but we're not really maximizing the depth of what that relationship should be. I think that's where a lot of us honestly are. I think that's where I am a lot of the time. Um, and man, if God has given us the gift of relationship with himself, I would just pray that we would be people that really enjoy this to the fullest because there's nothing better that could be given, right? If <laughs> this an announcement. Interesting. Okay. Um, <laughs> if God is the greatest gift giver, if he knows you the best, he designed you, he knows exactly what satisfies you, he knows what you were created for, and he says the greatest gift I can give you is reconciliation, relationship with me, then man, we would be fools if we don't take advantage of that. If we don't really press into that. If we don't really try to, to figure out, God, how do I actually thrive in this relationship that you want to bring me into. Not just to where I can say, yeah, I'm a Christian, so I won't go to hell when I die. But to say, no, like, Lord, I really want to know you and experience you on a daily basis. That's where Psalm 37, I know I'm taking forever to get to Psalm 37, don't worry. <laughs> this is where I'm bringing this back around, and I'm not going to pre preach through every verse of Psalm 37. Um, but, but the reason I wanted to pick this psalm is because I feel like it starts to speak into this a little bit. About the, it, I think that this psalm has something to teach us about what life looks like with God and what, what comes from that. Now, uh, you may have noticed this when I was reading Psalm 37. It's kind of organized almost like a collection of Proverbs. Like there's a lot of almost random thoughts. Um, it's, it would be a very difficult psalm to kind of preach through because there isn't one coherent like argument through it. If you read Proverbs, it's just like a lot of individual statements that are kind of, that stand true within themselves. A lot of that's going on here in this psalm. Now, I will say with Psalm 37, there is kind of an overarching theme that you see, which is this idea that um, there's a way that the righteous live and there's a way that the wicked live and that there are consequences for both of those things. The, right, the righteous living yields a certain result and wicked living real, um, yields a certain result. But within that, there's a lot of like specific things that kind of speak into what righteous living looks like or what wicked living, living looks like. Um, and so the way I'm going to attack this this morning, I'm, I'm not going to go through each one of these statements, but, but this psalm has impacted me mainly through the statements, of the, the in the Lord statements. Uh, near the beginning of the psalm, there's actually three different times that it talks about doing something in the Lord. And as I think about this relationship with God that he's given us, that's, that's really how I want to live. I want to live in the Lord. Like, I want to live in Christ. I want to be as close to him as I can. And so we're just going to spend the rest of our time this morning really looking at these, uh, these different statements of what we want to be doing in the Lord and see what kind of light David can help shed on what it looks like to actually kind of experience this relationship with God that he's given us, right? Because David was a guy that had a thriving relationship with the Lord. I want to be a man that has a thriving relationship with the Lord. And so the first of those statements we see is in uh, verse 3. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. We start with trust, right? This is appropriate, actually, because there's no healthy relationship that you can have with anyone if it doesn't have a lot of trust involved in it. You can't have a rich relationship with someone if you don't trust them. Could you imagine feeling like you had to, like, lock everything up in your house when your friends came over or something? <laughs> right? Like, no, the reason you don't do that is because you trust them. Um, the trust of the Lord here, it's actually tied together with doing good. Which makes a lot of sense to me because you're actually going to have a very hard time doing good if you can't trust 
that God is good and by extension that his commands are good. So I, I think that so much of our doing good comes down to that, the first off, helping, having God define for us what good is and then trusting his commands that he actually knows what he's talking about. Um, he's clearly laid a lot of this out for us of how we should live. And frankly, a lot of what is good seems intuitive to us. All of us have a, a conscience. Many of us share a natural understanding of what's right and wrong. Um, general idea of good behavior and bad behavior, I get that. Uh, ultimately, doing good comes down to loving God and loving others, right? Like Jesus said, uh, he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. He said, all the law and the prophets hang on these commandments. You, know, you want to know what it is to do good? Love God, love others. In some ways, it sounds really, really simple. And in a lot of ways, it is really, really simple. However, I do think there are plenty of other times where because of the, either the culture we live in or the sinful desires that we have internally, that sometimes doing what's good is not intuitive. And even if it's intuitive, it's not necessarily easy. And that's where we have to trust that, that God knows what he's talking about in his commands. I'll give you an example. Um, God teaches us some things about sexual ethics that are different from the ethic that our culture lives in and what, what it thinks is good in this area, okay? Uh, it's commonplace in our culture to believe that sex is kind of like uh, not just an acceptable, but even a good part of a healthy relationship. I'm not talking about hookup culture or anything, but like if I talk to most people, I say, hey, yeah, if I'm in a dating relationship where we're committed and we really care about each other and this kind of thing, like then sex seems like that's an appropriate part of that relationship. It seems like a nice way that we can express our, our care for one another. And in some ways, like that seems to make sense on the surface. But this is what God says about this in, in Hebrews 13, just for example, he says, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now, that word fornicators, that's not a word that we use very often in English today, um, but it refers to people that are engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage, right? And so uh, it comes from a Greek word, porneia, which sometimes you'll see translated as sexual morality, but it, it's covering this idea of fornication within that. And uh, the point that we see here is that the marriage bed has the opportunity to be defiled both within marriage and outside of marriage, right? Adultery is when you're married and you're having sex with someone that's not your spouse. Fornication would include sexual activity that's going on with people that, that you may not be married, but you're still engaging in this with people that are not your spouse. And we see that the point here is that marriage is the only appropriate place for a sexual relationship to, to be happening. Now, why is it that the marriage bed should be kept pure? This is not really a popular view. Like, uh, yeah, it's popular in our view in our culture to say adultery is bad. But the idea of sexual activity before marriage, like that's pretty much Christians are like the only people that pretty much live that way in our culture anymore. And I think the reason is because it can be really hard to trust that God knows what he's talking about in this area. I think a lot of people can agree that hooking up with random people and, and stuff is dangerous and un unhealthy, but um, the, the view with committed relationships in our culture is usually different. And honestly, this is how I felt in high school. I had a hard time understanding this command. I dated the same girl for three years in high school. I cared a lot about her. We were committed to each other in a lot of ways, as much as high schoolers, I guess, can be. Um, and <laughs> and it, was, it was the idea that I shouldn't have sex with her was difficult for me, right? As a matter of fact, I, I didn't really understand it. It didn't, it certainly wasn't how I wanted to live. 
the only thing that I could do is say, God, I trust that you know what you're talking about in this area, and I'm going to be obedient to you. Okay? Because I couldn't really come up with a good, with, with a, a great reason otherwise. Now that I'm married, I have a different perspective, right? Like, now that I have more perspective, I'm really thankful for the, the command that God gave me. I see that it's actually for my good. I see that, that if, if I had entered into a sexual relationship with her, that actually would have been selfish. I might have thought that it was loving, but actually it would have been selfish. It would have been disrespectful to her and her future husband and us engaging in something that should have been kept only between them. And it would have been disrespectful and unloving towards the woman that's now my wife and, and sharing something with another person that should have been kept only for her. And I, I don't get all of this in, to, to try and guilt any of you that have kind of failed in this area or gone off track. Like, God is awesome at redeeming brokenness. He's really good at that. He's expert. There's no one better than him. And so if, if you've failed in this area, I know a lot of us have failed in this area, God can restore and redeem what's been broken, okay? He can heal. But sin does leave scars a lot of the times. And, and God wants us to, to thrive. He wants to give us the best life possible. And so when he gives us commands like this, even ones that don't make sense to us intuitively, we have to trust that he knows what he's talking about and it's for his good. If we want to be people that actually thrive in our relationship with God and experience the relationship with him that he wants us to have and experience the life the way that he wants us to live it, it's gonna, we're going to have times where we have to say, God, I don't even necessarily understand this, but I'm just going to trust you because I know that you're good. And I trust your judgment even more than my own. So, you know, I, I also think that trusting his commands isn't just about staying away from things that we want to do. I think sometimes actually the harder part is trusting his commands and actively doing the things that he calls us into that are difficult. Things like serving others and being humble, right? Like, don't forget, Jesus washed feet. Like, he washed the feet of his disciples. And he said that we should follow that example. He told us if we want to be great, we need to become servants. Look at what he said in Matthew uh, chapter 20, verse 26. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's not something we naturally want to do is be servants and be humble, right? But God says, no, do you actually want to experience life abundantly? That's what I offer. And I'm telling you that it's, you're, you're better off learning to be a servant than you are trying to be someone that exerts power over others. How about being generous? Right? Even in this psalm, look at how often that was included. Psalm 37, verse 21. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. A few verses later, in uh, 25. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken <clears throat> or his descendants begging bread. All day long, he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. The righteous person is generous because he believes what God says. Right? That, that Jesus told us that it's more blessed to give than receive. That's, actually, that's an interesting quote. It's quoted from Jesus in Acts 20. It's not in the Gospels, but Paul quotes as Jesus in Acts 20. Um, but he says it's more blessed to give than receive, right? Like, we're naturally selfish. We want to be people oftentimes that hoard our resources. But if we trust God about what abundant life is, then we actually start to be transformed into generous people. We start to become more like him. And also, you're able to be generous because you trust that God's your provider. Right? Like, like 
fear leads to stinginess. If you don't believe that God is going to take care of you, it's very, very hard for you to be generous towards others. But if you have faith and trust that God is your provider, that frees you up to be a much more generous person. Your trust in God's just fundamental goodness will be essential for your growth as a Christian and for your intimacy with God. I think many of us are at roadblocks in our faith because for whatever reason, we've come up to spots where we don't really trust that God is good in, what, in, in some area. And until we can trust that he's actually good and we surrender this thing that we're not willing to give up, we're going to have a hard time experiencing continued growth. And so guys, that, that's one of my prayers for you is just that uh, we would be a church that, that is completely and totally sold on the goodness of God. And that we, because of that, we can follow him even when things don't make sense to us or when we're scared or we have questions or whatever else. May we be people that trust in the Lord and do good. We're going to do that if we, we're going to do good if we trust in the Lord. The, another one of these in the Lord statements I see is delight in the Lord. In verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I love this verse. This is actually the main reason I wanted to preach on this psalm today is because of that verse. And uh, it's not because I think it's a verse that tells me God will give me anything I want, okay? I don't think this is saying, if you want a Tesla or that certain job or uh, that girlfriend or boyfriend, just delight yourself in the Lord and then he'll find a way to get that to you. I don't think that's what this is saying. Uh, I actually think it's saying something much better than that. Our hearts desire all sorts of things. Right? But, but what they desire most are the things that we delight in. Like things that really bring you joy, that you delight in. That starts to become what your heart desires the most. And so what we see in this verse is that God promises to give us the desires of our hearts. But what is that conditional upon? The first part of the verse talks about something else happening first, which is delighting in Him. So what follows is that if we delight in Him, we will desire Him. And if we desire him, he'll give himself to us. And, and guys, how, how cool is that? Basically what God's saying is, your love for me, if you choose to love me, it won't be unrequited. It's not going to be a situation where you just want God and, and, and you say, God, I just wish that I could have you, but, but he gives us the stiff arm. If we learn to delight in him, he's going to give us more and more of himself. And he's even going to change our hearts even for the other things that we desire in many ways to be more in line with, with who he is and, and things that are actually good and that he wants to give us. And so you might say, Grant, that's a great concept, but how do you just delight in God? Like, how do you choose to do that? It's an interesting command, right? Like, delight yourself in the Lord. How do you even choose what you delight in? Because and, and on the surface, it seems in many ways that we kind of don't control the things that we delight in. A lot of the things that we like are just natural. Um, our hearts are really hard to understand. Okay, I don't even want to begin to act like I understand everything that makes us desire the things that we desire. But what I do know is that I believe we can put ourselves in a position to be able to delight in God more. And I think that you actually see this in your life in all sorts of things, right? I've talked to a lot of people. I like country music. Any of you guys out there like country music? Okay, yeah. Okay, well, I'll bet those of you that, that, are, uh, that hate country music, which is a common position for a lot of people, um, if you found yourself in a spot where you were listening to it more and more, mo- a lot of people, they end up 
coming to like it for whatever reason because they're put in this position <laughs> that they almost learn to delight in it. And I know some of you are shaking your heads now. Um, and, and of course, it's not a perfect illustration, but, but for I, I, I know other pl- people, plenty of people, that that's been their experience. For me, I never grew up listening to classic rock or anything, but uh, when I started playing Guitar Hero a lot and I started hearing all the classic rock songs, I kind of started to delight in, in the, the classic rock music. Um, and so... I think that we can put ourselves in positions to, to where, where our heart starts to learn to appreciate certain things. And I think that in our relationship with the Lord, if we want to be people that delight in Him, ultimately we need Him to do a work in our hearts. But I do think that there are uh, things we can do to set ourselves up for success in this area. And so I'm just going to walk through some of those things. Um, the, the first thing I would say is that we need to be people that delight in Him through His Word. Uh, in, in verse 31 of Psalm 37, it says, The law of God is in his heart, his steps do not slip. This is talking about the righteous man. Uh, but notice that it says the law of God is in his heart. How does the law of God become in your heart? Well, it starts with reading it, right? Like you have to know. But I'm sure there are tons and tons of things that you've read before that are not in your heart <laughs> that you don't think about. Something makes it into your heart when you really, truly spend time with it, chew on it, wrestle over it, struggle with it even, ask questions about it. We need to be people that, that move away from this idea of, I read my Bible because it allows me to check a box off on my reading plan, or it allows me to tell other people that I'm a good Christian or whatever else. We want to be people that read God's Word because we want it to come into our heart. To actually start to transform the way that we think and consequently the way that we act, right? It talks about how this man's steps don't slip because the law of God is in his heart. And so I, I would say consistent time putting yourself in front of God's word, thinking about it. I don't care. I, I would rather have you guys read like a couple verses in a day than three chapters if that's all that you can actually meditate on. Like I think that will do more for your walk with Jesus. I, I hope that you read lots of scripture. I hope that all of us become people that know the whole Bible really well. But man, you're n- it's not going to make it into your heart unless you really take time to meditate on it, pray through it, and think about it with the Lord. And I think that as you do that, you're going to start to see more of who he is and how great he is. You're going to learn to delight in God better. We also need to be, be people that delight in him through musical worship. There's a lot of powerful stuff about this. Remember, I told you earlier, the whole book of Psalms is the longest book in the uh, Bible, and it's a collection of songs. There's all sorts of stuff uh, where we see that musical worship is something that can actually be helped, uh, can be used to help compel our hearts to want to delight in God. Psalm 103.1 starts by saying, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. This is a song that's starting out this way. It's just telling my soul to bless God, right? And I think sometimes that's what we come and do here on Sunday mornings. I don't know what attitude you come in with. Right? Sometimes you come in, it's hard. Sometimes you come in and you don't feel like singing. You don't feel like worshiping God. I, I think that when we do that, we should come in with this kind of attitude in Psalm 103, where it's just like, I don't care how I feel right now. I'm telling my soul to bless the Lord because I know that he's worth blessing. I know that he's worth praising. And as we do that, it can start to change our mindset. It can start to move our hearts to a spot where they want to delight in him more. We can also delight in God through remembering. We often have short memories about what God has done, and it robs us of a lot of joy, and it robs us of delight in Him. 
Part of the reason that we have holidays, like Christmas, is to consistently remind ourselves of important things that are worth celebrating. You know, if, if I was to read on in Psalm 103, the one that starts with, bless the Lord, it goes on to say this in verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. He goes on and on saying, don't forget the benefits of the Lord. If I want to learn to delight in God, I better learn to be a person that remembers the things that he does. Because sometimes we're not always feeling it. Sometimes it's not always easy to see how God is delightful or the things that he's doing. But if I can remember all the things that he's done, that's going to help me to delight in him. I think that a, a useful activity for you, maybe if you're having a hard time delighting in God right now, would actually be to sit down and just even try and write out. What are, what are some of the things that God's done? How are some of the ways that I've seen him move? How are some of the ways that he's blessed me? I've done that in my own life at times where I've struggled connecting with Lord, the Lord, and it's been really helpful for me. We can also be people that delight in God through his people. You know, uh, as the church, we're, we're called Christ's body. Or, or in that 2 Corinthians passage that I read earlier, Paul talks about how they're ambassadors for Christ. People that are representatives. And so one of the things that nobody can give us a better picture of who God is than Jesus, right? He's that exact representation we read about in Hebrews. But we as the church can live in a way that we help each other to delight in the Lord more, right? Like the way that we live, the more in line we live with how God is and we love people and represent him well, the more that can cause others to delight in God because they're getting a glimpse of him through you. Uh, look, look at this, in Matthew 5, 16, Jesus told us, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Right? Like, if, if we are a people that are filled with good works and with love and that let that light shine, what does that do? It actually starts to create delight in God. Right? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so we as a church have an opportunity to be able to be living our lives in such a way that we help each other delight in God. And we can be one of the things that people thank God for because of the way that, that he is loving them through us. We can also be people that delight in him by walking with him. This, uh, this illustration of walking with God, we see it some in Psalm 37. It says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Man, I, that, I, I just love that because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Think about that picture, right? Like I think that's actually a helpful picture for us. This idea of walking with God. We see this illustration several times throughout the scripture. And I think it's a great description for uh, what our lives should look like, right? Like when you're walking with someone, first off, what's something that's essential? That you're both going the same direction, right? So as we're walking with God, that means that we're living in a way that's in line with the things that he would do. We're going to the places where he would go. We're, we're uh, caring about the things that he would care about, moving in a direction that he would move. But also we see that he's holding our hand. Why do, why do people hold uh, people's hands, okay? Um, there could be a couple reasons, but what I think of, at least in this picture, is r right now I'm trying to help my daughter learn to walk, and she can't really, she of course can't do it on her own at all. She's only eight months. But I, I can hold her two hands and she can kind of take steps forward, right? I'm kind of there guiding her. And what am I doing? I'm a, a sense of security as I'm walking with her. 
my, my presence and my holding of her hand is allowing her to be able to move in the direction that she needs to move. And for us as, as, as people of God, it's like, man, God wants to hold our hand. He wants to help us walk in the places that he's leading us. He wants to be there to catch us in the time we fall, right? When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Do we think about the fact that God is holding our hand? That we get to walk humbly with him? Like, just being aware of the presence of God in your daily life, I think can be a really life-changing thing. Right? Like, you, the, the next time you're stressed out about work and you go into the office, that you can say, God is holding my hand right now. Like, he's with me in this. I'm going to delight in him in that. You know, or, or you're, you're going home for, the, for Christmas and you're stressed out about the, seeing your family that can be difficult for you or something. God is holding your hand as you're in that situation. Like, just, just that, I think, is going to be something that helps us learn to actually delight in God. When I first started following Jesus and really getting serious in my faith, I remember being encouraged uh, to just look for ways that I would see God each day. And that ended up being a really impactful practice for me. Just to try and see, how, how do I see God even in the way that, you know, when I watch the sunset, do I, do I just think, oh yeah, the sun came up another day, not even give any thought to it, or just think like, man, like, God, thank you that you've given us the sun, <laughs> giving us warmth and light and food and all this other kind of stuff. You know, the little things like that can end up making a huge difference in your life. And finally, we can delight in him through obedience. Actually, living out God's commands gives you the opportunity, first off, to, reach, to reap the natural benefits that come from this. Our God is a good God. He's not trying to rob joy from you. Righteous living has natural benefits in and of itself. For example, if you love your neighbors, you love yourself, you're going to reap, oftentimes, the natural benefit of having rich relationships with other people. But sometimes, the obedient life brings a lot of showers of blessings and you're thriving. Other times, though, it might actually be really difficult, painful, and wearisome. Um, you know, we've been reading Romans that was written by Paul. That was a guy that lived an obedient life and went through a lot of struggle. David, the guy who wrote this psalm, had plenty of pain and struggles in his life. Um, I don't know what spot you're going to find yourself in in the future. But I do know that as we're continually obedient with God, like, He's not going to abandon us in those situations. And ultimately, for whatever reason, as we're going through a dark situation, there's, he's going to make good come of it in some way. I want to encourage you with this verse, Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. There's times where we reap a lot of the benefits of righteous living immediately. There's other times where we're sowing, we're planting, and for whatever reason, God just might seem distant. Blessings might seem distant. There's a promise here. In due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. Guys, I, I don't know when God will bring about all the blessings in your life that he wants to give you. Okay? I actually think that God works through struggle and adversity and trial for, for good reason. The Bible speaks positively of those things, about how it creates perseverance and character in us. But ultimately, we know where history is moving, because we know where time is moving, that God ultimately is going to do away with evil, and he's going to establish his kingdom in perfection, and that there's not going to be any more pain or crying or mourning or death or anything there. We know that we're moving towards that. 
And so no matter what, guys, if you feel like you're weary right now, if you feel like you're having a hard time delighting in the Lord, I I hope and pray that you would be people that continue to try and press into him and continue to put yourself in a position to be able to experience him, even if you're not doing that right now. He wants to give himself to you. Finally, the last in the Lord statement, I'll be brief on this one, is just this idea of resting in the Lord. In verse 7 of Psalm 37, it says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Some translations say be still there where it says rest. This idea of resting in the Lord, being still in the Lord, it brings to mind the idea of being calm, patient, and peaceful in an attitude of trust towards the Lord. One of the major themes that we see in this psalm, even though it does seem to have a lot of scattered thoughts, is that God will set everything right in due time. Those who love God and follow him will have their reward, and those that do evil will eventually bear the consequences of their actions, even if they're thriving for a period of time. Seeing the wicked thrive can be really frustrating, right? Like, when you're seeing people that, that are evil, that, that are just getting all sorts of what we might think is blessing or something, and just being able to continue on in that way, that can be really frustrating, right? Like, think about Jeffrey Epstein, right? He's dead now, but the, that, that must have been so frustrating for the people that he was abusing, to see this guy flying around the world on a private jet and living in mansions and all this kind of stuff. <clears throat> and that can be difficult for us. It can almost feel like, man, does God even see uh, what's going on here? Why is it that people like that sometimes are thriving? And why is it that other people that are really obedient to the Lord and faithful to God are, are oftentimes going through so much suffering? But here David's telling us, man, don't, don't fret about this. Don't let this be something that gets under your skin. Don't let it bother you or make you full of jealousy. It's not going to do you any good. You know, being still and resting in God doesn't mean being indifferent to the injustices that are in the world, right? Like if you see evil prospering, it's not saying just sit there and do nothing about it. Um, The brokenness of our world should move us. Jesus uh, says in, in the Gospels that he was moved with compassion when he saw the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. James tells us that, that pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. The, the distress and the pain and stuff of this world, uh, be, being still or resting in God is not the same as saying, oh, just be indifferent. Just don't care about it. That's not what this is saying. But what I think this is saying is that the rest that the Lord gives us that we're commanded here in, is to rest in the things that we can't control, right? Like, yes, we are called to be people that take action where we can, to care for the orphans and the widows that are in their distress, to do things to serve others, to be generous, to help, even to stand up to injustice where we can. But ultimately, we, we can't set this world right in the way that it needs to be set right. We can do our part, do as much as we can. But on the inside, we, we have to have a peace in knowing that we, that's out of our control. 
but that God sees it and that he's going to do something about it. And I think that that's really what we're getting at here where he says, just don't fret, rest in this. Know that, that in due time, God's going to set things right. So we live the best lives we can. We try to, to make this world look as much like God's kingdom as we can, but at the end of the day, we have to be people that learn to have peace in our hearts even in the midst of this brokenness, knowing that one day God is going to set it right. And it, you know, it even talks about those who wait on the Lord will inherit the land. And guys, there is a beautiful land that God has prepared for us. Um, Jesus talked about how he went to prepare a home for his disciples, and that he'd come and that they could be with him. And one of these days, guys, Jesus is coming back. And in that day, as it talks about the, the, the wicked being cut off, that's a reality. Our sin is a serious thing. And, and God, w w when Jesus comes back, he is coming back to set all things right. And that's really good news in some cases, but it's really scary news in other cases because that's where sin is going to be judged in its entirety. And that's why the cross is so important. Because the only way that we're going to be able to stand on that day of judgment is to be covered in the blood of Jesus. There's not one of us that can stand before a righteous and holy God that has come to punish all sin and to wipe out wickedness once and for all. If we're standing on our own merit for that, guys, it's not going to go well for us. But because of this gift of Jesus, that we can be forgiven, that when he comes, he says, yes, you've been washed clean. I know you're not perfect, but remember what we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. So Jesus looks at us and says, yes, you're clean. You're, you're actually, you actually stand before me blameless because of the work that I did for you on the cross. <clears throat> And as that, that honestly, the, the reason that that, it, that judgment is even being held off is because God's giving people more time to repent. And so while we're there right now, waiting on this kingdom to come in fullness, waiting as we see injustice, waiting as we see difficult things, we know, hey, God is holding off on this because he, he ultimately doesn't want to have to punish sinners. He wants to forgive. That's why he has the cross. That's why we need to be doing what we can to go and try and help people and love people and share the gospel with them. But one of these days, Jesus is going to come back, and judgment's going to come, and wickedness is going to be judged, and all things are going to be set right. And those that are in Christ are going to be able to dwell with God forever in eternity there. And that needs to be something that gives us peace in the times that we feel like fretting, in the time that we feel distressed, in the time that we're having a hard time not being angry or wrathful or anything else. Let that be something that gives us peace in our hearts, knowing that we serve a God who sees, he knows what's going on, and in due time, he will set everything right. So, all of this to say, guys, we need to be people that thrive with the Lord. He's given us this greatest gift, which is a relationship with himself. My hope and prayer is that we would be people that press into that. So let's pray, and then the worship team can come back up. Um, God, we love you, and I thank you that you love us as much as you do. God, I pray that we would be a church that really presses into our relationship with you. God, that we'd be a church that learns to delight in you. 
Think of what your psalm says. Uh, uh, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. God, help us to really have a heart that desires you. Help us, God, to be people that trust you. That do good because of that. And Lord, help us to be people that rest in you. Knowing that there are certain things, God, that are outside of our control. But knowing, Lord, that ultimately, one day you're going to set everything right. I thank you that we can rest in the finished work that Jesus did on the cross, that our salvation is not lacking. There's no extra good works that we need to do to get you to approve us or anything like that, God, but that the work that Jesus did on the cross is finished. Help us to rest in that, rejoice in that, and to delight in our relationship with you. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your son's awesome name.